Well, I'm eager to hop into this new uh, season in the Jesus series. You know, we've broken down the Jesus series into a number of smaller seasons in Jesus' life. Uh, we looked at Magnificat, which was the announcement of Jesus coming. We uh, looked at Catalyst, and now we're looking at a very, very important series called Rogue. And uh, that's an unusual word, an unusual name. I think you're gonna find it's a very unusual series that deals with what happens when an imperfect religion meets a perfect man. That perfect man is seen as a rogue. He is uh, seen as someone that is uh, an upstart, someone who is trying to turn the tables or turn things upside down, someone who's new and different and who challenges the status quo. I wanted to name this series Jesus versus religion, or more blatantly, Jesus hates religion because in reality, when Jesus comes and begins to walk on planet Earth, people began to say, hey, he's not what we thought he was gonna be. But what does the scripture say Jesus is going to be? And what does the scripture say he's coming to do? And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, would you hold them up? And when you hold them up, say the word Jesus, would you? Amen. Take them and turn to Luke chapter four this morning. Luke chapter four. Uh, we've looked at the baptism of Jesus and, and now we're moving into this era, era of his life, which is the rogue era, the, the era in which he's seen as a rogue leader, someone that's turning the tables, turning things upside down. Jesus is just now coming into his public ministry after the baptism experience. Now the baptism experience and then the temptation in the wilderness are huge, huge times in Jesus' life. And we glean so much from that. But now from there, we're moving on into verse 14. Let's stand together as we read God's word together today. We'll, we'll open up by reading verses 14 through verse 22. The Bible says in Jesus, return to Galilee in the power of the spirit. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So this era of his life, starts with a very powerful affirmation. Favor of men is all over him and all around him. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written. Now this is a selective reading. Jesus opens the scroll, not as easy as finding a book and chapter and verse, but opening up a scroll, looking carefully at finding that section of Isaiah that brings this prophecy that we can read about in Isaiah chapter 61. So there's a pause while Jesus stands up and there's a pause while he unrolls the scroll and, and people are waiting in anticipation about what he's about to read. And, and he finds the place, the Bible says, in the verse 18 says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. How many of you think that's good news? Say amen. That's all good news. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were gazing at him. They were staring at him. They were thinking about what he's just said. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is a messianic prophecy. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lip. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? 
Father, in Jesus' name, we need an understanding of what unfolded this day so that we can properly understand the rest of the ministry and words of Jesus and so we can understand the opposition to Jesus. Father, today speak to us in a way that only your Holy Spirit can. I ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, God's people said, amen. Please be seated. I call this message Raising Religion, R-A-Z-I-N-G. It doesn't mean raise up, but it means tear down. Very interesting play on English words, raising something in order to raise up something better. How many of you remember when Texas Stadium was raised to the ground and torn down? Remember that? Remember the demolition crew, the deconstruction crew, they went out and they tore down Texas Stadium. I mean, that was a very special stadium with a hole in the ceiling, right? It was very unusual. It was a place where the Cowboys played for so many years. It was a place where they had lots of victories, lots of great games went on there in several seasons that went to the Super Bowl. And they won the Super Bowl a number of times. It was a place where I played some football in Texas Stadium years ago. And then my son played his first high school playoff football game in Texas. That very special place. And I remember the, the time when that stadium was torn down. It was completely torn down in order, of course, to build another stadium in another place that we now know as Cowboy Stadium or whoever is sponsoring it now, AT&T Stadium. Goes to prove that the biggest TV sets in the world are really in a really nice place just down the road. And that you can build a new stadium and not necessarily still get any more Super Bowls out of it, you know. <laughs> Always with the jab. You raise one thing to raise up something bigger. Raising religion is what Jesus came to do. See, over the years, religion takes on a lot of man-made qualities. Over the years, religion ceases to be often what God intended for it to be in the beginning. And it can be built on the same foundation, same platform, but have lots of man-made ideas, lots of man-made priorities. And Jesus has come to change all that. He'd come to manifest God, to reveal God for who he really was to all the people who would, who would see him. And he came first to the Jews. Now, we know this because we, we have the advantage of looking back to the past, but we know the Jews rejected Jesus ultimately. And I'm going to tell you some of the reasons why they rejected him today. And one of the reasons is because he came to set them in the right direction in terms of the kingdom. And we need to know that today. Now, this message today is kind of involved. We're looking at a lot of different verses, so stick with me here. Jesus is going to rebuild. He's going to redefine. He's going to reposition religion. And this is what happens often. It still happens today. When an imperfect religion meets a perfect man, this man is seen as woke. And some still see Jesus today as rogue. In fact, when we walk through a Jesus series, there are going to be some things that Jesus does and says in the book of Luke that are going to shock you. There are going to be some things that he does that are going to bother you. And he was doing some things that bothered these people on that day. But first, let's look at the season of favor. As we open up this text, it's very obvious. These people are adoring. They're fawning all over Jesus because here is a local hometown boy. He comes back to Nazareth. He's reading in the synagogue in Nazareth, as is his habit. They watched him grow up. And so he stands up. He finds this text in Isaiah 61 and reads this profound messianic announcement and says, today in your hearing, this passage has been fulfilled. And knowing what they knew about Jesus, that he was a perfect child, 
raised in the customs of the law and the customs of, of the Jews. He had been to the temple to talk and lecture to and be heard from by the priest. He was questioning them. You remember all the things that we've already walked through in the boyhood years of Jesus. All these things the people of Nazareth knew very well. If Jesus had have done some miracles that we don't know about, they would have been done in the presence of those at Nazareth. So this is a hometown boy, Joseph's son, who grows up and the people see him as anointed and special. He's baptized in the River Jordan. The Holy Spirit comes down out of heaven and rests upon him uh, in bodily form, not like a dove, but as the aura of the Holy Spirit. The Father's voice comes out of a split open sky and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Yes. They're in favor of what Jesus just said. He's our Messiah. He comes from our hometown. We love this story. And the Bible says the people are saying marvelous things about him. He's in a season of favor <clears throat> until he begins to open up the scriptures for him. You know, often that's the way it is today that, that the kingdom work which is done through the church of Jesus Christ today can be going along really well and you really have favor with it and uh, favor of what's going on in, until the scripture opens up and a sword comes in and begins to convict. It begins to say, hey, I'm going to rearrange pieces of your life. I'm going to tear down some things so I can build up some things. And that's what God is in the habit of doing in our life. I'm going to raise, R-A-Z-E, some stuff in your life so I can raise up something much better. And we need to be for that because Jesus is the master, the creator. He's the one that has license to do that, has wisdom to do that. But this is the season of favor for him with the Jewish people. But then I want you to note something that happens so quickly. And by the way, what Jesus says in this messianic announcement is amazingly positive. Try to put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. I don't want to move past this too fast. He's just said several things. He just said, scripture's fulfilled. The Messiah has come, and you're looking at him. He said this reign of the Messiah is going to be compassionate. He's going to set free the captives. He's going to liberate those that are in bondage. He's going to give eyesight to the blind. He's going to heal those that are hurting. All that's good news. And then he says the year of Jubilee is being declared. He's coming to declare the, the favorable year of the Lord, rooted in Old Testament prophecy. This is the 50th year that Jesus is talking about that's about to happen, a year of freedom, and all the Jewish people would be celebrating. We don't have time to go into all that right now. But in this season of favor, he said everything they want to hear. Now he's about to say some things they don't want to hear. And they move to a season of rage. Because, see, this text, if you keep reading it, turns out very badly. So let's jump down to verse 28 and see how this text ends up. The Bible says after Jesus continued on, and we'll go back and cover what he said, it says, and all the people of the synagogue were filled with rage, okay? So they were speaking wondrous things about him in verse 22. They were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this awesome? The Messiah has come and he's come to our village. But now in verse 28, all the people of the synagogue were filled with rage. That's a little bit worse than being mad, isn't it? That's a little bit worse than wrath. That, that's worse than being frustrated or disturbed or misunderstanding what's going on. They're filled with rage. In the original language, it's like a blast of hot air. All of a sudden, they're, they're moving with anger. And since they heard these things that Jesus said, moved them to rage. Verse 29, they got up, they drove him out of the city. They led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him 
off the cliff. Okay, so we've got a scene change here. He's coming from the synagogue where he rose with the scroll open and they're in favor of him. They're giving high fives to each other. They're, 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 they're talking about him in a favorable way. And then he says some more words and they're filled with rage. They lead him to the brow of the hill. The brow of the hill would be the highest place in Nazareth where under the law, if someone was to commit blasphemy, they would take him to the top of that hill uh, in Nazareth and they would throw him violently to the base beneath that brow and they would all pick up stones and they would begin throwing those stones on the individual who committed blasphemy and they would begin to stone him until he died. This is what they want to do. They want to put him on a throne and then they want to put him to death in the space of just a little while. Does that make you curious about why they moved from favor to rage so quickly? Does it make you wonder what is it that Jesus said that turned them off to him so quickly? These words that we're about to look at today tell us why many won't follow Christ and why many who are religious cannot accept him. Because the season of rage comes about because of the illustration Jesus gave them. And they were moved to rage. They drove him. They threw him down because he's dismantling. He's demolishing their man-made religion. I don't know how many of you are house decorators and love to decorate the house, but if you love decorating the house, how many of you like to do that kind of thing? Everything's in place and there's a place for everything. Raise your hand if you're like that. Or if your spouse does that, raise your hand if it's your spouse too. Lots of hands up everywhere. My wife is a consummate decorator. She loves everything in its place and, and, and everything that's in its place is in great shape. I mean, my wife just does this so well. And because my wife loves to decorate, then, then our home is a, is a wonderful place to be. Now, sometimes I come home, uh, it's late at night and the lights have been off and I've walked through the house and she's redecorated during the day. I fall over a piece of furniture that wasn't there like <laughs> earlier in the day. So sometimes she's prone to do that. But she's always free to redecorate that house because that's her house. I just live there. That's her house, right? But if I redecorated the house while she was gone, buddy, there'd be real problems going on. If she came home and I put all my stuff on the wall, we take off the beautiful picture of flowers and put some football poster up, right? It'd be a whole different matter because I'm redecorating her house in a way of speaking. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to redecorate the house of Israel. He's come to take things that have been placed up that shouldn't be there and remove them. He's come to put the things that his father wants in the house. If, if you're having trouble seeing the different times in Jesus' ministry when that happens, think about the cleaning of the temple, the cleansing of it, where he moves out the money changers. Think about all the times that Jesus had walked in and shot things straight that have been added over the years that should not be there. And that's what's happening right here. What Jesus has said to the people in the synagogue has stunned them so much that they realize that he's coming to bring changes that they're not sure that they want to take place. So what is it that he says? In chapter four, verse 23, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your Hometown as well. Now, Jesus has yet to go to Capernaum. Chronologically speaking, he will go. He will perform miracles. We'll look at some of those next week. But as yet, he has not gone. 
and he's prophesying to them that at some point I'm going to do miracles elsewhere I don't do here and you're going to wonder about that. And then he goes on and he says in verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Now that's one of the most quoted verses in scripture where, where we sometimes say we can't go home because familiarity breeds contempt. And when we go home, people won't see whatever it is that's going on in our lives and understand it. Only if a newcomer comes, is he free to do what, whatever it is that he wants to do. So no prophet is received well in his hometown. And then Jesus gives a couple of illustrations about the kingdom that are powerful. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Jesus says the miracle that God sent through Elijah was sent not to a Jew but to a Gentile. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And then verse 28 again, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Let me talk to you today about what Jesus said and was saying about the true kingdom. And let me help you know today that what Jesus says about the true kingdom is also true of the authentic church that he's building. And let me just say that some of these things are surprising, especially if you were a first century Jew. But they're also surprising to those of us that live in a church age where we've been brought up in a church that believes in a certain way and thinks a certain type of thing and, and thinks something is or is not appropriate in the house of God. Today, Jesus is going to kind of dismantle some of those things and hopefully encourage you that the kingdom of God is still alive, it's still well, and we're moving in the direction we ought to be moving in. The first truth, I'm gonna give you four of them today. The first truth is that the true kingdom is for every nation. The true kingdom is for every nation. The reason Jesus was talking to the Jews about the Gentiles was to illustrate the fact that though the Messiah is coming with his pronouncement, he's not only coming to the Jews, but he's coming to all. In other words, from this moment forward, the Jewish people were not to be considering the fact that religion was ethnocentric. That's a John Piper word, ethnocentric. And what that means is what God came to bring was not centered on one group of people, but rather on all. Not just for the Jews. Now, let me just say to you today, I love the Jewish people. I love God's chosen people. I love the fact that God is fulfilling and has fulfilled promises to the Jewish people. There, there's, no, there's no question about that in my mind, but what the Messiah came to say and do that day to these people is to make them aware that the true kingdom is for every single nation. And the Jews have become bitter enemies with the Gentiles, with the Samaritans, with everyone else that wasn't Jewish. They had taken the dream that God had gave them through Abraham and they had extrapolated that dream. You remember the promise God gave Abraham was, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a part of a peoples that are not yet. I'm gonna give you a promised son. Isaac would be the promised son coming through Sarah, Abraham's wife. And I'll make of you a great nation. Remember that promise, Genesis chapter 10, 11, 12. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
And so God does what he says he's going to do. And so he gave the promise and Isaac was born. And the descendants of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and so forth were as the number of sand on the seashore. You've been to the seashore lately? In fact, some of you know it's spring break and you wish you were at the seashore right now where some of your friends are. And all the sand is on that seashore. Have you ever tried to number the sand of the seashore? God says, I'm going to make a nation that's so numerous, it's going to be like that. Uncountable, infinite number of people. And the Jewish people had that hope, they had that dream, and as God expanded their kingdom, and as God worked in their lives during that Old Testament era, they had grown into this exclusivism that says, the only people that matter are the Jewish people. And when God comes, he's not gonna come for anybody else except us. And that was not the heart of God. So when Jesus came, he came to say, this religion is going to be for every single nation. No one ethnicity has a corner on God. And aren't you glad, unless you are a descendant of Abraham, aren't you glad that he included you too? Are you glad? I look back at John chapter three, verse 16, I'm so glad it's there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting lives. But at that moment, that would have been a blasphemous statement for the Jewish people. They would have thought, that's not how we know God to work. That's not what the promise is. That's not what we expected. But everything Jesus did reminded them of this. Jesus was a storyteller and a parable teller and a miracle worker. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan that he told in front of his disciples and in front of the Pharisees? You remember the story how it unfolds that the rabbi didn't stop for the hurting man, that the Pharisee didn't stop for the hurting man? Who stopped for the hurting man? Who's the hero of that story about the good Samaritan? The Samaritan stopped and Jesus commended him in his story. The Samaritan was worse than a Gentile. It was half Jew, half Gentile, reviled in the eyes of the Jewish people. Or what about the, uh, the story of the 10 lepers that were healed and all sent to go their way and only one leper came back and the leper that came back was a Gentile leper to, to give gratitude to God. Over and over, Jesus would remind the Jewish people, it's not just about you, I'm using you, I'm working through your life, the Messiah will come through your line. There's much joy in that. But I want you to know, Jesus is saying, the true kingdom is for every nation on the face of the earth pushing them outside their comfort zones, making them look out the windows of the synagogue into the world. Second thing Jesus was saying is the true kingdom is offered to hurting, broken, struggling people. You see, the people in the synagogue that day were people who were not Gentiles, they were Jewish. They'd been brought up in the law, they understood the customs. They had their lives pretty much together when it comes to keeping the law. And because the Gentiles would have not have been present when Jesus stood up and made that announcement, the Jews thought about all the people that were not in the synagogue, all those people who were not in their minds qualified to worship God. And they were angry because all of a sudden Jesus is saying, it's for everybody. No matter how broken, no matter how lame, no matter how sick, no matter how blind, no matter how in bondage people are, the real kingdom is for every person that is in every kind of condition, even those that are struggling currently. And then Jesus went out and began to 
make disciples of people one by one. And when he began to make disciples of people, think about who he chose. Matthew, the tax collector. The guy who partied all the time and stole people's money. And Jesus said, look, I'm gonna ask you to follow me. I'm gonna ask you to lay everything down and follow me. Can you imagine the indignation of the Pharisees when they saw Matthew following Jesus? Or Peter, the loudmouthed fisherman, the guy that always smelled bad, the guy that always had a bad way of saying things at the wrong time, foot in mouth disease to the max. That's Peter. And Jesus said, Peter, I want you to come and follow me. And the Pharisees, the Jews, looked at that and think, what is he doing? If he's going to be the Messiah, why is he calling these band of misfits to follow him? And Jesus continually reminded people, I've come to bring those that are hurting close to me. I've come to bring those that are far from God close to me. I've come to bring those people who don't have it all together, those people who don't know how to keep the law, those people who can't say, we've lived a life of righteousness. I'm calling them to God. And I'm calling you to God as well. The kingdom is offered to hurting, broken, struggling people. And folks, today the kingdom is made up of the same. It's We've got to be at the place in our lives where we say it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to have it all together. It's okay to have dysfunction in your life, to fail God, to fail others. It's okay to stumble into temptation, stumble into sin. Now, God loves you too much to leave you there. And he gives you deliverance power in your Messiah, Jesus. But it's okay to have a bad record and come to God through the grace and the love and the compassion of Christ. When Jesus talks about heaven in Matthew chapter 25, stunning everybody in the room who's listening to this, he says, here's what's gonna happen in heaven. I'm gonna say, blessed are you because when I was in prison, you visited me. And when I was sick, you, you, you gave me what I needed. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was uh, uh, naked, you clothed me. And the disciples said, even the disciples were stunned by this saying, when did we ever do that in that you did this to the least of these, my brethren? You've also done it to me. I'm here for those outside acceptable culture as well as for you. Come to preach the gospel to the poor, to the blind, to the needy. Number three, it says the true kingdom is not political. The true kingdom is not political. I'm so glad that we're not about to have a presidential election in a few weeks for me to be able to say this right now because you might want to throw me off the brow of the cliff. The true kingdom, though, is not political because of everything Jesus didn't say. Jesus did not say, I'm the Messiah. Let's ride the troops. Let's get everybody through boot camp. Let's overthrow these evil Romans who oppress us endlessly. Jesus had every capability of doing that, but he did not do that. As a matter of fact, the Jews thought about the coming of the Messiah as a once-for-all kind of coming. And so when they saw that once-for-all coming of the Messiah, they thought of him as militaristic, glorious. He would bring unity to Israel, and they would overcome the enemies with a great judgment. That was their view. We now know that the Bible says that Jesus is coming not once but twice and when he came as the suffering servant the first time, you see compassion and love and the outreaching arms of Jesus Christ. But when he comes back, 
that will be glorious, that will be a judgment, that will be a time that ends all time. And on that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm looking forward to that day. Are you looking forward to that day? I'm looking forward to that. But this is not that. That glorious, majestic judge who is coming is coming, but he's not coming just yet because there's work to be done. There are those outside the purvey of religion. There are those that are hurting and, and helpless. There are those that are far from God that need to be reached first. And, and we're being called, just as the Jews were being called, to look outside of themselves. The true kingdom is not political. No, instead of that, Jesus entered into relationships with people. And that gospel relationship where he mentored them and led them and pointed them to the cross and to the sacrifice was the way this Messiah was going to change the world. And you see, that's what we do. We're called to change the world not by political power, not from the top down, but from the heart out. We're called to change the world with a life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to change it the way Jesus said that it was going to be changed. And number four, number four, the kingdom, the true kingdom is about heart change, not real keeping. The two examples Jesus gave us that we read about today were examples where people could not keep the law. They could not perform the rituals. They were not allowed. They could not worship as the Jews were commonly doing. They, were no, they had no rights in the eyes of the Jews. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I'm paying more attention to the heart than I do the outward signs. Later on, we see Paul saying, not all are Israel who are descendants of Abraham. Not all are followers of Christ who were born Jewish people. So Jesus was saying the kingdom is about heart change. It's about what goes on the inside of the heart. And both the widow who was ministered to and Naaman had a heart change. The widow in 2 Kings chapter 5 was forced to have faith and trust a Jewish prophet who pointed to a God that before that moment was unreachable by her. Naaman, the prophet, was, was, was covered with leprosy during a, a leprosy plague in his nation and, and a little slave girl, Jewish slave girl said, go to the prophet of Israel. He'll pronounce something over you. And he goes and Naaman is told, go dip in the river Jordan seven times and, and refuses to do that at first and then realizes, oh my I have no other hope for healing, so he has to trust and he has to obey the living God. So both of these people had changed heart and what Jesus was saying is that the kingdom is about the heart and about the change that's going to stop, start in your life when you meet the Messiah. And as Jesus taught, he emphasized that over and over. In the Beatitudes, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say if you look upon your brother with hate, you've already committed murder. He said... You've heard you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, even if you lust in your heart after another, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. And they weren't prepared for that. So then Jesus, as though he's going to show them who exactly he is, walked right through an angry mob. Jump down to verse 30. I don't want to miss this amazing miracle. The Bible says in verse 30 of chapter 3, they brought him to the brow of the hill they're about to throw him off and stone him. And then it says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a crowd this big forcing Jesus to the hill? 
about to throw him off, about to stone him. And the Bible simply says, by way of explanation, he passes through the crowd. Now, I don't know what happened that day. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not a, a big wrestling match. I'm pretty sure he's not grappling with them and pushing them out of the way. I know he doesn't have a sword. Um, I don't know how exactly this unfolds. My estimation, my thought about this is that every time the Jewish people uh, were, were confronted by armies that were greater in number than them, God would often send confusion onto those armies and the, the children of Israel would rise up over the hill, look down, and the battle was already won. There was a sign that God was with them. There's no doubt in my mind that something happened with these people and Jesus was able just to walk right through the crowd of people who wanted to stone him the moment before. A sure sign of a prophet, a sure sign of one who had the hand of God on him. They could walk through that. Imagine that. And as he walked away, the people had to stop and look and say, what has just happened? And I'll tell you what happened. God, the Messiah, has come to them. He's dismantling their world. He's going to show them a new one. And I want you to know today, the new world that you and I need to be thinking about in the kingdom are those same four things. First of all, the kingdom that God wants to build in your life and the church today is all-inclusive of every race, every nation, every tribe. No one is excluded. It doesn't matter if you were born in America or Africa or China or some other Asian country or the Middle East. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter who your parents are. I'm telling you today that the God of Israel sent his Messiah, Jesus Christ, to be your Savior as well as anybody else's. And in the church today, we need to be aware that salvation in Jesus Christ are not ethnocentric. It amazes me today that we see pictures of Jesus who looks like a blue-eyed, blonde-haired person born in America. You know that's not the picture of the real physical Jesus, right? We all know this, right? I know somebody had some misguided cultural idea of how to present that well to white people in white churches somewhere across America somewhere, but that's not the color of Jesus' skin. Jesus is not ethnocentric. He is for all of us. Read the, the version of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Every nation of the world were there. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And the Bible said they all heard him speak to them in their own tongue. And they went home to tell the good news to everybody back home. Read Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 where they're singing a new song. And they're singing, worthy of you to take the book and break its seals. Uh, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood every nation and every tribe and every people to be saved. You see, the kingdom of God is for all. It's for all. It means you don't need to worry about anything except coming to Jesus today. You don't need to worry about where you've come from, what's your pedigree, even what your religious background is. It's all inclusive. Number two, it's for people who are messed up and don't have life's answers. It's for people who are messed up and don't have life's answers. People who are willing to say, I don't have it all together. Can I make a confession to you today as your pastor, as your spiritual leader? I don't have it all together. Now that doesn't stun any of you, does it? And it shouldn't stun you, but you should be willing to make the same confession. You should be willing to say, I don't have it all together, but praise God, I have a savior that'll put me back together. That'll take me in the right direction. That'll help me build my life the way it ought to be built. 
Thirdly, it's not a political movement designed to make everyone do what we want them to do, but it's a transforming relationship that allows someone to want to follow Christ and obey God. When I went to college, I wanted to kind of take off my Baptist background. I was a Baptist pastor's kid, so I was there every time the doors were open. Literally, sometimes I opened the door. I had a key to the church when I was 12 years old. That tells you something. Not because I wanted a key, but because my dad would have me open the door for others to get in. Been to WMU meetings. That'll mess you up if you're a little boy, being a women's missionary union. When I got to college, I thought, you know, this is not just a streak of rebellion, but this is a attempt to realize, is what I have real? Or is, is it what my parents just gave me? And I got away from the church, and I got kind of out on my own, and I began to read the Bible on my own, I began to study on my own. Before long, I realized, no, this is not outward religion for me. This is an inward relationship. It draws me to the word, that draws me to other believers, that draws me to want to worship together in a gathering with God's people. I don't, for the life of me, understand why people do not want to gather with the worship of God with God's people. That's something that internally I'm motivated to do. If I weren't a preacher, I'd be sitting right there singing at the top of my lungs, opening my Bible, saying, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. It's inside, it's heart change. That's what reality is. And then, fourthly, it's about your heart more than anything else. It's about whether you can be in love with this Messiah, whether he does everything the way you want him to or not. It's about whether you can worship him even when he turns your life upside down. It's about whether you recognize he is the amazing God-man who creatively and powerfully made the universe and mankind and who showed radically passionate love when he died on the cross and shed his blood for you and for me. It's about whether you can know him and love him and experience him from the inside out. It's about whether you can throw your future to him and say, whatever it is you want to do in my life, I'm willing to do it. It's about whether you can worship him even when things aren't going well on the outside and when you're disappointed with life and how everything seems to be going. It's about your heart. And when it's about your heart, it's evident that God is moving in your life. That's attractive. That's authentic. That's appealing. That's what the church should look like. And Jesus, when he came, said, that's the time I'm going to turn this thing upside down. And everything he said and did from that moment forward is aligned with these four things that we read and looked at today. I want us to not see him as rogue. I want us to look at this perfect man and say, he is what I worship is all about. He is who we follow. Not man-made religion, but the God-man who came to reveal the Father in every way. Let me ask you a very important question today as we conclude this message, this moment. Do you follow religion or do you follow a Messiah? Are you following a system or are you following a man, Jesus Christ, who came, lived, and died for you? Is your allegiance to him more than anything else? If it is, then everything he says do, you'll embrace. We'll embrace. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment during our time of invitation. I want you to close your eyes. Our, our prayer counselors are coming to the front as we conclude this service. And as you come, 
Go ahead and come and face the congregation because in a moment we're going to close our time together. I'm going to pray. We'll be dismissed. And there will be many of you that want to come forward and pray with someone today. And I want to ask you to do that. Take the time. Expend the energy. Get past whatever barriers are there that makes you think you don't want to come and talk to someone. These people are prayer warriors. They'll love you. They'll understand what you want to share, what you want to pray about. And they'll encourage you in every way. And I want you to do that today. And then I also want you to do something else with me. Since the kingdom of God is not just for us inside the kingdom, but also for all those that are hurting and far from God, I want you to join me in what I'm doing. Look up this way for just a moment. I've taken that little piece of paper that was in the worship guide, and I've written the names of my three friends, three close neighbors that I've been praying for for quite some time. Aziz and his family, Muhammad, his family, Joey and his family. They all live within just a few feet of where I live. I run into them every once in a while, talk to them sometimes. But my goal over the next few weeks is to pray and converse with them in such a way where I can invite them to come to our worship services on Easter weekend because I want them to hear the greatest story that's ever been told. I want them to have the same opportunity that we have when we hear about Jesus the Messiah and how he gives us freedom and deliverance and sight to the blind and uh, freedom to the oppressed. I want them to hear that because they have their own backgrounds that they deal with and they need to come to the Messiah that sets all of us free. Now I'm going to roll these names up. I'm going to do that right now. And I'm going to take them to the cross as I walk out, out the back. There's a large cross out there. You saw that cross when you came in, perhaps. It's right in the center. And where that cross is, uh, on that cross are, are holes drilled for us to just put these names on that cross. And, 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 and I realize that it's very symbolic, just like what we did earlier in the service, and much of what we do is symbolic, that symbolizes steps we take to worship God or steps we take to obey God. And I'm going to put this in one of those, those places on the cross. And I'm going to take my friends to the cross in prayer every day. And then I'm going to have conversations with them and ask them to come with me on Easter Sunday morning. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. I want you to stand with me today. Let this be a day where we act out, take steps of obedience to honor the Lord, not only in where we put our hearts next to him, but also in what we do once we leave the doors today and go out into the world we live in. Again, we want to invite you to your guests to come to the guest reception center. We always want to do that. We want to invite you to give generously to the Lord as you leave today. There's a way for you to do that. But these names, these names are important to God. They're important to us. I want you to follow my lead today. I want you to follow the lead of the other services are doing this very same thing in the chapel. Our Spanish service is doing this. Our international service is doing this. Our traditional service has done this. We're all going to reach out. You know, this is thousands and thousands of people. I'm going to ask you to make it a priority. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you today for the wonderful groundbreaking message of Jesus. Thank you for how it pulls down, deconstructs all the bad things about man-made religion and how it points us to the true priorities. And Father, today I thank you that you included us. I thank you that Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. And today we are among those recipients and we're grateful. But we ask you today, Father, that you would allow us to think outside our walls and outside the windows of our own home and our own circles of influence. And Father, to reach into the lives of others and invite them 
to know the same Jesus. And Father, today, make this a conviction in our heart and a willingness to obey. But today, we do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.